sweethearts. Welcome to another episode of Love Letters 2. I'm Alicia. And I'm Melissa. We're so happy you're joining us today. So Melissa, you are going to start our love letters off today with a good one. It's a surprise to me. I don't know. You've been sitting on it. I have a great one for you today. Spill it, sister. This woman is someone we all should know about. Dear Violet Jessup. Oh, I don't know this one. Okay. You're going to wonder why in a little while. I cannot tell if you had exceptionally good luck or exceptionally bad luck, but either way, your story of survival is remarkable. If you were a fictional character, your storyline would almost be too absurd to be believed. You were born on October 2nd, 1887 to Irish immigrant parents. As a child, you suffered from tuberculosis and doctors told your parents that you would not survive. Man, were they wrong. Little did they know that tuberculosis was no match for your life force. Your father died from complications of a surgery and your mother was gone most of the time earning a living as a stewardess at sea. As the oldest of nine children, you Holy were- cats. Exactly. You were required to care for your younger siblings from a very early age. As your mother's health also began to worsen, you had to get a job to help provide for the family. So you also decided to become a stewardess on a cruise liner. At that time, most of the staff of the ships were older women, and you were actually turned down a few times because you were too young and beautiful. (laughs) That's normally what you don't look for in a boy. (laughs) Which led to managers believing that It would be too much of a distraction for the other staff and for even the passengers. But you would not be dissuaded. You decided to beat them at their own game, and you came next time to the interview disheveled. (laughs) You wore old clothing. You made your hair be messy. You tried to look older and less attractive than you actually were, and it worked. This is not something that women often do, but that's a hell of a way to get the job, isn't it? You got to do what you got to do. All right, Alicia, we're getting to the good part. So, Violet, you got the job and you did well because you were a very hard worker. It was on the RMS Olympic that you first worked in 1910. The RMS Olympic was the lead ship of the White Star Line, and it was the largest and most luxurious ocean liner until the Titanic came along. On the fifth voyage of the RMS Olympic on September 20th, 1911, you would survive your first ocean liner disaster. Oh, just the first one? Yes. Oh, no. You were working on the deck, Violet, and the sea was calm. There was no indication of a problem. But soon, the Olympic collided with the British cruiser HMS Hawk. No. Yeah. The Hawk was a military ship, and its bow was actually designed to sink ships by ramming them. Oh, no. This was not good news for the Olympic. The collision tore two large holes in the Olympic, one above and one below the waterline. As a result of that, two of the watertight compartments flooded. Miraculously, no one was killed. You're kidding. No one. Oh, my. They, They were not super far away from the shore and they were able to return to port And the Olympic was actually repaired in a few weeks and returned to sea later. So the Olympic actually would remain seaworthy until 1935 when it was sold for scrap. The HMS Hawk 
would sadly be sunk by a German U-boat during World War I. But that day, they both made it through the collision. This incident barely made an impression on you, Violet. <laughs> and when the Olympic returned to sea, you returned right along with her. However, when an even larger and more luxurious cruise ship was being built and looking for experienced staff, don't do it. Don't do it, Violet. Don't do it. Everyone around was talking about this unsinkable ship being built in the port of Southampton. And it was considered a very desirable place to work. So, Violet, it was on the RMH Titanic that you were hired in 1912. This time, You also got a promotion and you were hired to serve the VIPs on that ship, which must have been very exciting. We all know what happened to the Titanic, so there's no mystery to spoil there. It was one of the most notorious disasters of all time. But when the great cruise liner first hit the iceberg, no one, including you, was worried. After all, everyone had been told it was unsinkable. Big deal. Eventually, you were called to the upper deck after the impact. And you were present throughout the evacuation of of the lifeboats, but maybe not likely to get one of the spots, considering you were an employee. However, there were so many women afraid to get on the lifeboats because they thought it would be unsafe. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's a weird flex. Yep. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Hindsight, right? So an officer ordered you to get in to show them how to do it and to prove that it would be safe. I'll be your example. No Mm -hmm. problem. Once they saw that you were able to get into a lifeboat, they were also willing to try it. And women started getting on. It's a little unclear if you were meant to stay on that lifeboat, but it was quickly decided for you because a woman came along and thrust a swaddled baby into your arms. The lifeboat was quickly lowered and you hugged and cradled that baby close to you to keep it warm the whole time. It was confusing. There was so much chaos and confusion, and you were on that lifeboat with the baby. In fact, you didn't let baby go until your lifeboat was picked up, and you were both safely on the deck of the Carpathia. Soon afterward, a woman came along and snatched the baby away from you. What? Yeah, just came and got the baby. Since you had not gotten a clear look at the baby's mother when she put the baby in your arms, you just assumed the woman who took the baby was its mother. But honestly, you were so in shock and freezing, so you didn't really think a lot of it. But later, you would wonder, because she didn't say thank you. It really didn't make sense that she got into a different lifeboat. But at the time, the Titanic had just sunk, and you survived, and you just thought that was the baby's mom. We'll get back to that. In the aftermath of the Titanic disaster, you were still willing to work on another ship. I mean, really, at this point, you had already survived two sea disasters. What are the chances? Okay, so you got some nurse training in the years following the Titanic. And it was as a nurse that you took a job on the HS Britannic, which was converted into a hospital ship. So on the evening of November 21st, 1916, out of nowhere, there was an unexplained explosion on the ship. No one really knew what happened. It was later determined that the ship had hit an underwater mine. But there's also a few interesting conspiracy theories for anyone who wants to go research that. After the explosion, Britannic would be completely sunk 
in less than one hour. Whoa. Yes. Without time to wait for a lifeboat, you, Violet, jumped overboard and swam your way to a lifeboat. Holy smokes. See what I mean about tuberculosis just not even being an issue for this woman? So you did find a lifeboat, but this was not a reprieve because the propellers of the Britannic were still whirling and they were sucking lifeboats under the stern and many people were killed that way. Oh my God. So you and several others had to jump at the last minute out of your lifeboat because you were being sucked right into the propellers. And in so doing, you suffered a head injury. You believe the only reason later that the impact of your head injury didn't cause you to lose consciousness, which would surely have meant you drown, was because of the thickness of your hair that protected your skull. (laughs) I mean, I don't know, but that's what she, that's what Violet attributed the whole situation to. Violet, death-defying feats and good hair too. Uh Uh-huh. Yes. Well, Violet, you were nearly killed by the propellers, and then you were nearly killed by trying to escape them. A few years later, you would go to the doctor after having suffered terrible headaches ever since that night. And it would be there that you would find out that you had actually been walking around with a skull fracture that you had sustained when jumping out of that lifeboat. And that was understandably causing your headaches. Oh, Violet, no one can say that you aren't tough and extremely brave. Are you ready, Alicia? I don't, I don't know if I can handle anymore. This is extraordinary. Well, extraordinary. Our very brave friend, Violet, returned to work for the White Star Line in 1920. And she would actually continue working on cruise liners until 1950. No. Yeah, when she retired. So after your well-deserved retirement, Violet, you moved to a cottage in Suffolk County after working at sea for over 40 years, a year into your retirement. I was just about to ask, does Violet just lean into a comfortable, easy retirement? Well, kind of, especially comparatively, but (laughs) this one night, I mean, everything would seem like a comfortable retirement after three seat disasters. But (laughs) there was this night that she got a very strange phone call and it was a woman who didn't introduce herself. She simply asked, was it you who saved a baby on the Titanic? (gasps) Violet, when you answered that, yes, that was me. The woman laughed and said, that baby was me and then hung up. So you told your friend about the call and he said, well, it was probably just some kids playing a prank, but you told him that could not be true because you had never told anyone, not even your family about that baby. Oddly, the only records of a baby being reunited with its mother after the Titanic sank was of a boy. We know his name and we know his mother's name. We know who had held him in the meantime no baby girl was ever recorded as being rescued separately from their mother and then reunited aboard the Carpathia. She never solved that mystery and she never learned who that baby was. But here's to you, Violet Jessup. After surviving more than most people can even imagine, you lived until 1971. Whoa. When you died at the age of 83 from heart failure. Your ability to defy all odds earned you the names of Miss Unsinkable (laughs) and the Queen of Sinking Ships. 
Your remarkable and daunting story is the ultimate tale of survival and one with which we should all be amazed. Stunning, right? That was incredible. Melissa, that was a love letter. That was the adventure story. That was a mystery too. Well done. Thank you. So when we get back from break, Melissa, I'm going to take you through the tour of a lady you might not know anything about who was definitely unsinkable in her own way, but she has been described as a genius in the art of living. Ooh, I want to know more. Back in a minute. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So Alicia, you have a love letter for us about a woman who is a genius at the art of living. I do. I do. Today, my love letter is to Lillian Mahler Gilbreth, the mother of modern efficiency. Wow. I did not know there was a mother of modern efficiency. There is a mother of modern efficiency. And believe it or not, you probably already know of her, her children. There are 12 of them. Wow. Two of those children co-author the book Cheaper by the Dozen. Oh, and the follow-up book bells on their toes. Wow. Let me tell you about Lillian Mahler, mother of modern efficiency. Lillian was born into an upper middle-class family, May 24th, 1868 in California. Her parents are German immigrants and Lillian wants to be a career woman and begs her parents to attend college. And Lillian's parents aren't too down with that and only agree if she'll remain living in the family home and taking care of her siblings. It sounds somewhat typical of the time. Well, it's super reasonable because Lillian is attending University of California, where, believe it or not, at the time, there's no tuition. If you are an in-state student. Yep. Wow. Times have changed. There are also no dormitories for women. Okay. So Lillian doesn't really have much of a choice. She will stay with her parents and holy cats. Lillian graduates in 1900 as a star student. She majors in English, but she will study psychology, philosophy, as well as get her teaching certificate. Wow. You go Lillian. When Lillian graduates in 1900, Lillian is the very first woman to speak at a University of California commencement speech ever. Impressive. Mm -hmm. Wow. Lillian's going to go on to get her master's from Columbia University, and she'll begin her PhD studies, but she wants to take a little minute, visit Europe, and it is on the way to Europe with her chaperone traveling through Boston that she will meet her future husband, Frank Gilbreth. Lillian's chaperone for Europe is Frank's cousin, which is how the two of them meet. Frank's a little bit older. He owns a construction company, but these two fall in love because they share a love of efficiency. (laughs) That's really romantic. (laughs) They love the brain power each other has. Like a love affair is born. The two marry in 1904 and then proceed to have 
12 children. Wow. These are the kids naturally written about in Cheaper by the Dozen. And I would think you'd have a lot to write about your parents. Can you imagine having 12 kids in a household? No, no. Especially with two parents who own a company called Gilbreth International, who are literally studying time and motion studies, ergonomics, efficiency. It's incredible. That is incredible. So the household naturally is run in a very specific way with 12 kids. Very similar to the sound of music and Captain Von Trapp, when Frank blows a whistle, the kids are to come. There are charts in the bathroom where each child has to mark off their daily tasks, brushing their teeth, taking a bath, combing their hair, making their bed. Additionally, on this chart, each kid had to weigh themselves at night and plot a figure on a graph. Wow. Okay. No, they're not kidding around. No. Uh, this is something you may want to put in your back pocket as a mother of kids who may ask you, I want more allowance, mom. Mm-hmm. Frank and I- Lillian, for any kid who wanted extra allowance, they would let th- that kid submit a sealed bid for the work that needed to be done. So each kid could compete for the work. In a sealed envelope, naturally, the lowest bidder would get the contract to paint the front porch. That's genius. Frank and Lillian do own a company, Gilbreth International, and they, holy cats, write a series of books about their techniques, including concrete system, bricklaying system, a primer of scientific management. But guess what? Lillian isn't named as co-author. Because the publishers think that if a woman's name is on the book, it weakens the credibility. Oh, gosh. Wow. After 20 years of a long and happy marriage, Frank dies of a massive heart attack at the age of 55 in 1924. Wow. Their youngest child is two years old. No. Two? And he was 55? So he must have been quite a bit older than her. He was a little bit older than her. Okay. Now- In Cheaper by the Dozen, Frank Jr. and Ernestine will write that their mother changes after their father's death. She loses every bit of fear she has. She used to be afraid of fast cars and airplanes and walking alone at night. They will write, now suddenly she wasn't afraid anymore because there was nothing to be afraid of. Now nothing could upset her because the thing that had mattered most had been upset. None of us ever saw her weep again. Wow. And Lillian doesn't weep. Lillian's got kids to provide for. Lillian's a busy woman. Well, a lot of companies don't want to do business with Lillian. Can you imagine why? Because she's a woman. That's exactly right. So Lillian is going to focus on kitchens. Frank Jr. and Ernestine will write in Bells on Their Toes. If the only way to enter a man's field was through the kitchen door, that's the way she'd enter which she does. This is the most remarkable mother of modern efficiency. So back in the 1920s, women spend a lot of their time in the kitchen. Lillian is instrumental in the development of the modern kitchen. In the late 1920s, she collaborates with Mary E. Dillon, who is the president of the Brooklyn Borough Gas Company, on the creation of of an efficient kitchen. We're looking at gas-powered appliances, 
and a kitchen structured around three principles, the correct and uniform height of working surfaces, a circular workplace, and a general circular routing of working. All of this is analyzed. How much time and effort are you putting in the preparation of meals? So just in this one instance, changing the shape of the kitchen, a strawberry shortcake used to take 281 steps to make in the old time kitchen, redesigned 45 steps. No. Yep. Wow. Uh, She also, Lillian does, a study of more than 4,000 women to find the best height for stoves and kitchen fixtures. There are a lot of inventions that Lillian has too. She will invent, not lying, the foot pedal trash can. No. Yep. Wow. Holy cow. Efficiency. Yeah. She comes up with the idea of putting shelves in refrigerator doors. You know, those little compartments. Yeah, those little compartments for your butter and your eggs. She invents those too. Before there was just nothing in in the door. Mm -hmm. There was no, wow. We should always ask the people who use a thing the most, how it can be improved. I mean, that's a hundred percent. Lillian also, wait, holds patents for the wastewater hose for clothes washers, as well as the patent for the electric can opener. Why don't we know this woman's name? It's a really good question. She's, she's the most fascinating character I have come across. Wait on it. We're not done. Lillian in the 1920s, as well as hired by Johnson and Johnson to facilitate a study into the perfect menstrual pad. Whoa. Okay. She surveys a thousand women and provides Johnson and Johnson with a long list of detailed recommendations. This is the very last one. I think you'll appreciate it. It is essential that a woman be added to the staff of Johnson and Johnson and that all products be submitted to women for inspection of design and tests for actual use. Absolutely. Little fun thing. She's friends with President Herbert Hoover and his wife, Lou Henry Hoover. She had known both of them in California. So she's doing government work as well. Herbert Hoover's wife, Lou, urges Lillian to join the Girl Scouts which she does, she'll remain on their board for more than 20 years. She'll even be a president of the board of directors of the Girl Scouts. Amazing. Did she have a team of nannies? She did have household help. That's what makes it so ironic. She's always had a cook for her kids. Mm -hmm. She's always been a working woman. So here she is doing these groundbreaking studies in kitchen efficiency. The kids are like, my mom doesn't know how to cook. <laughs> it probably drove cooked. her crazy though to see it being done in ways that took so much more work than it needed to. I cannot tell you how lauded, celebrated, and amazing Lillian is. Lillian will continue working uh, all through uh, in the Hoover administration. She'll directly work with the government in World War II. She will serve, goodness, for organizations like the Office of War Information and the U.S. Navy in her later years. She'll be on the Chemical Warfare Board. She'll be on Harry Truman's Civil Defense Advisory Council. Even in the Korean War, she's serving on the Defense Advisory Committee on Women in the Services. 
Amazing. Can't stop, won't stop. Lillian. No. Mother of modern efficiency. Lillian will pass away at the age of 93. (laughs) Wow. In 1972, just a few years after retiring. Lillian Mahler, Gilbreth, here's to you. What a fascinating life of genius accomplishments. Mother of modern efficiency, Lillian. Incredible. And our two ladies died one year apart. They were contemporaries yeah. living at the same time. What a ride. This was a lot of fun today. Two women that everybody should know about. Absolutely. Nice love letters. Sweethearts, thank you for joining us for another episode of Love Letters 2. We'll be back with two brand new love letters coming for you next Tuesday. And until we meet again, darlings, stay in love. Thanks for listening to Love Letters 2, a Hemlock Creatives production. Feel like showing some love to Love Letters 2? We'd love it if you tell a friend or leave us a kind review or even come and visit us on social media. You can find us at Instagram or Facebook at Love Letters 2 Podcast. You can also reach out and email us at loveletters2podcast at gmail.com or visit our website at loveletters2podcast.com. Until we meet again in the next episode, darlings. Stay in love.